podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The tenth time they've made it! They've won a playoff campaign! And they've done it away And for the first time in 74 years, Brentford will play in the top flight of English football! Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Elam Road podcast. If you haven't already listened to our episode where we go over Three wins on the bounce, that big win against West Ham on the weekend. Go do so now. That episode is live across all of our digital platforms. But on tonight's show, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by founder and host of the Anfield Rap, Neil Atkinson. Neil, mate, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. I know you must be a very, very busy man, so it's much appreciated, mate. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Lovely, lovely stuff. Let's just get into it, Neil. First of all, I think um, the first question I ask all of my guests... Uh, is what have you made of Liverpool's start to this season? Been really pleased uh, on the whole. It was, to be clear, I think there's something that's happened in the last sort of two weeks, despite the results against Luton, where I think that there's been a bit of a realisation amongst the wider country that Liverpool are a serious proposition at the top end of the Premier League. I always felt we were. And the reason why is because I think if you've got the best goalkeeper and the best attackers, you're always in any conversation. And that's what I think Liverpool had before a ball was kicked this season. And it's what Liverpool have got. And they've had them fit on the whole. There's been a couple of injuries and obviously there's been small injuries. And obviously there's been the issue around Luis Diaz. But on the whole, those players have been available for Liverpool. And in an era where you've got five substitutes to play with, the idea of being able to swap two of your, your front line at any given moment in a game with players of equal quality on the whole, albeit different players, offers a manager a huge, huge option. And then beyond that, I feel as though, you know, Van Dijk has got himself back to his his, his, his best. Uh, that isn't quite superhuman, which is what he effectively was for a period, but he's now the best normal defender on the planet again, uh, without being the best superhuman defender on the planet, which is what he was between 2018 and 2020. And then on top of that, there's all the encouraging signs. Things are not perfect. This is not a perfect football team by any stretch of the imagination, but lots of bits that weren't functioning last season have been functioning. And I even include the Luton game in that. It was a disappointing drop in a point, but last season we lose that game. Um, Earlier this season, we probably go behind earlier uh, within it. Whereas this time out, you know, we don't play brilliantly far from it, but we create a lot of really serviceable chances, stay alive. And in the end, we also fight back. Last season, we wouldn't have done that either. There was a lot of disappointing results on the road last season where Liverpool went one behind and then had no spirit uh, to be able to pull themselves around. One of them was at Brentford. So, you know, all in, I'm pleased. I feel as though Liverpool have improved massively. I feel as though they are in the shake-up for the Premier League title. Um, obviously, Sunday's game has a big impact on that. Every game has a big impact on that. But I feel as though this is a Liverpool side that's definitely going places. Just looking at that Luton game in isolation, I watched the whole thing. He had he had loads of chances and obviously pegged back by by that goal towards the end. But it does show the fight that Liverpool have got this season. Were, were you disappointed coming away from that, or were, were, were oh, you kind I was, of looking at? I was devastated coming away from it because it feels like two points dropped, and it feels like a little bit too much of what we were doing last season. But as the time sort of passed, it's become more one of them. There are games I think over the course of a season which genuinely do feel like you know you've thrown opportunity or points away and then there are times where you just get you mug yourself a little bit or you get mugged a little bit the circumstances it's Luton's first massive home game um you know it's 4 30 it's sky it's a massive deal it's worth remembering for a, a number of those Luton players it's the biggest game of their lives that they played in 
and that's the, you know that's part of being Liverpool. That's part of the the nature of 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 being a Liverpool team is that you've got to be able to deal with that. And I actually think in general Liverpool deal with it well. They control the game on the whole. The not great forty five to sixty five would be my sort of overriding note. And and within there they give Luton a lot of things to be encouraged by, and then they get stung a little bit uh, at the end of the game, but. It was. It's not this. It doesn't have many other things in common with what was going wrong last season, or even in previous seasons where Liverpool have dropped points. So I'm, at the time, you know, the final whistle goes, and and I'm, you know, verging on inconsolable. Every minute that's passed since, uh, it softened the blow uh, a little bit of it. It just means that they've got less wiggle room. Last season, City dropped points against two of the top ten, bottom ten. Sorry, two of the bottom ten home and away. And Liverpool have now dropped points against one of what will be, you know, with all dis- with all due respect to Luton, they will be in the bottom ten, uh, you know, to one of those so far this campaign. We've got to look, let it not happen again anytime soon. You can maybe get away with three of them over the course of the campaign. Maybe this is one of our three or one of our two. Got to roll with those punches. So it's just removed the wiggle room. It doesn't mean anything's finished or anything's changed. Do you think that in terms of Liverpool kind of, challenging for the title this season you did mention it you think you're going to be up there talk me through this kind of rebuild in midfield like you've seen a kind of complete turnaround and it was one of the one of the kind of opinions leveled at this Liverpool side that was stopping them from maybe reaching the heights that Man City did was that this lack of depth in midfield so you've got these new signings Sabosla who looks absolute mustard uh, McAllister as well and Gravenberch who started against uh, Luton so just talk me through kind of these summer signings how how have they changed things at Liverpool well, the first well, the first thing that changes things that matters is that April last season, Curtis Jones gets back to full fitness and gets started playing in the middle of midfield and Liverpool changed the shape a teeny little bit, invert Alexander-Arnold uh, more often than not and go from there. Jones was the first the first key part of this. Uh, and whilst he's had a slightly interrupted season so far, he still remains really important to us. And I think he's an excellent player. Um, brilliant at holding the ball high up the pitch, looking after it and finding teammates. So he's made a, a huge impact. And then on to Bosley, you know, he's come in and immediately looked like Lord of the Manor. Um, he runs games, he runs the place. You know, sometimes footballers move to your club and it, you feel after two games like they've been there playing 200. And that's that's where Sabozlai's ended up for us. So, you know, he's been ever so exciting and he's got so much general awareness. I think the idea was he was a bit of a winger slash number 10. Um, and Liverpool aren't using him like that at all. They're using him as a completely different footballer. And he looks to me like he's he's really enjoying it and enjoying the fight and enjoying the battle of all of that. McAllister, we got to see the excellence of a Brighton. Um, and there's been a couple of times where he's looked a little isolated playing in the holding role for Liverpool. Liverpool didn't go and buy a pure, obvious number six other than Endo, who we'll come on to in a minute. But they've used McAllister there and the manager's attitude is that if it's compact enough uh, around him, then he can make it work. And, and I think he has done that in some games. I think there is obviously always going to be a bit of a question mark. But then I feel like with the exception in this league of... Rodri and maybe Fernandez at Chelsea. I feel like everyone else you look at who will play as a holder, there's question marks. You know, Rodri's that much better. When I said before about Van Dijk being superhuman for between 2018 and 2020, I feel like Rodri's been superhuman for two years uh, in terms of what he's done for Manchester City. So if you compare any footballer to someone like Rodri, you'll find them wanting. What McAllister has done for Liverpool brilliantly is star play from that position, from that role. And if the rest of the press works well, then that works well for him. If Liverpool come under a bit of pressure and there's more defending to do, then it's been a little bit tougher for him. But there's no doubt in his quality and, and Liverpool have got a real steal there when we only paid £35 million for him. Then Gravenberg has come in and just looked like, with the exception possibly of the last couple of games, where I, th- I feel as though it's been a match too far for him, um, he's looked like he's really enjoying his football. 
in a way that he just wasn't at Bayern Munich. And I'd feel as though he's not been burdened with too much tactical instruction so far. I think he's been really encouraged to play. Uh, and that's worked most of the time. Uh, the last couple of games, maybe, just maybe, that's began to sort of fade and also maybe his legs because he doesn't play that much football at all for Bayern Munich last season. Um, he doesn't get... I don't think he gets a single 90-minute performance uh, and most of his football comes from the bench. So Liverpool are trying to build his fitness back up, but they've had to use him a little bit more in recent weeks. And then the last one in amongst all of this is Wataru Endo. And I think Endo might well start against Brentford. It wouldn't surprise me if Liverpool decide that it might be a game too far for Gravenberg at that point. Use McAllister. Oh, McAllister is out as well. He's suspended after last week. So they can't use McAllister higher. So they throw Endo in there and he plays in the number six role. So I think he'll feature against Brentford. And he's a footballer who I feel as though will come on for three or four months training with this Liverpool team and with Jurgen Klopp and his coaches, who has got a ton of tactical intelligence and every single time he plays he begins to move the ball faster and faster through the midfield phases which is what we need a player to do so Endo whilst he's been the slowest starter of the four uh, firstly I expect him to start against Brentford but also secondly I, I expect him to to continue to improve in performance uh, for the next sort of season or season and a half whilst playing for Liverpool because he's just never trained with players of this calibre before. Uh, but he's clearly got a lot of a lot of the tools. Whether or not he's got all of them might be up in the air, but every squad needs squad players. It's, it's a weird one with Endo because when he signed, we all saw that kind of big Klopp hug that I know a lot of mm. Liverpool signings get. And, you know, he said, he said to him, you know, we've needed you. I kind of thought he'd come in and maybe be that Jordan Henderson workhorse in midfield and you kind of see him thrown in there at the start, but he hasn't kind of hasn't featured much yet. But you, you think he's 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 gonna be in the lineup on, on on Sunday? Yeah, I think he'll be in the lineup on Sunday because McAllister's suspended, so someone's gotta play right. number six unless Liverpool change the shape. On the the it's worth saying that, you know, Fabinho, um, who at Sealham was unbelievable playing for Liverpool and I don't think Endo will reach those heights, but he doesn't get very much game time in the league when he first signs in the summer of 2018 he's, he's he's not really starting games until the end of october start of november with any degree of regularity so i think there's there's a fair bit of getting used to what, what it is the manager wants from you in that position uh, but i think that endo has a role to play over the course of the campaign it may not be a star in one but all these players matter to liverpool and I think Endo is definitely in the shake-up uh, for Sunday. I expect him to. I expect him to start as the holder. I want to. I want to talk a little bit about the players that can that can hurt Brentford, of which of which there are many, <laughs> of which there are many. Obviously, Mo Salah stands out as the one who who pulls all the strings for Liverpool and has done for the last five or four or five years or so. But I do want to talk about one man, Darwin Nunes. I, I wanted to gauge what Liverpool fans think of him because I see a lot of fans raving about him on Twitter, and he's kind of. He, whenever I watch him play, it's pure chaos, whether he's missing a chance or scoring a goal. But he does get himself into these positions every game, uh, whether he scores or not. I mean, he had one against Luton that I think would have been offside anyway, but that that was got to go down as one of the misses of the season. Well, what, what do you think? What have you made of his time at Liverpool and, and how high do you think his ceiling is? I think his ceiling's absolutely unstoppable. I think he's, you know, I think he's a remarkable player. It's unbelievable how involved he is in football matches while simultaneously being at the end of so many chances, many of which he either carves out for himself or creates for himself with his powerful running. I feel as though this season he's he's gone up a level in terms of his general play. To me, he reminds me of Didier Drogba. Um, it might not, it might <laughs> it's high praise, but it's not a comparison you hear very much because I think Drogba's in general underrated. One of the things that Drogba was, was exceptionally difficult to deal with and to play against. And I think that when you see what it is that Nunez can do, 
he just redefines football matches very, very quickly. And there's listen, there's always going to be an element now with whether or not you want him starting or finishing games uh, from a Liverpool point of view, because you know your idea will be to be able to take him off and replace him with himself. But there is there's a thing, there's things that he does that just make him exceptionally hard to defend against. So you know he's excellent. Jot is in a, a relatively rich vein of goal scoring form. Gakpo is coming back from a bit of an injury, but he's he's had a good season. Diaz has obviously got the personal circumstances that might mean he's not in a position where he feels as though he can start the game on Sunday. Um, and then Salah is, as you say, he's, he's genuinely excellent. And Liverpool can pick three from those five. I suspect, given the wider sort of context at the minute, it will be uh, Salah, uh, Nunez, and, and Jota. Uh, but we've obviously got another game before then, as with the, at the time of recording, which is the game against Toulouse. So that might impact it a little bit, but. That's what I'm expecting Liverpool to do. But if Diaz's personal situation is cleaned up, you never know. And also, the manager may use Gakpo, and he may even pick four, uh, because because McAllister's suspended. Um, I'm not quite sure. There's a bit of talk that Gravenberg's not in training today. So it may be that he's, he feels as though he's down uh, a midfield option. So it's possible uh, that he uses Gakpo in midfield. I'm a big fan of Gakpo. I think he's quality. Lovely player. Yeah, no, really nice, really tidy. Just bringing the focus on to Brentford briefly, because I do want to talk a little bit about the uh, referee that's been appointed for Sunday, which I know a lot of people will be interested in. But just what what have you made of Brentford so far in the Premier League? We've played you a few times. There's been some crackers as well. Um, last time out, we lost 1-0 to you at Anfield uh, in a game that I thought we actually played really well in. Um, Ivan Tony had an absolute, an amazing game that day. He, he was yeah. class. But what, what have you made of Brentford so far in the Prem? Oh, just really interesting, tactically sophisticated, very, very switched on. A good group of footballers um, who all know the job and know what it is that the manager wants them to do. I feel as though there's, you know, there's innovations that Brentford have made, but I think one of the, the core the core principles that's underpinned it is being these are a group of footballers who back each other, back themselves, back the manager, and who are intelligent. And a lot of those are sort of core football values. People want to talk about the, the cutting-edge stuff, but what Brentford, I think, have, have done really well whilst doing the cutting edge stuff is is to have those old fashioned things uh, be in place. You know, these are these are footballers who he likes a clever player and he likes a player who's got experience, while simultaneously gives opportunities to younger players and to more exciting footballers, and expect that that group to grow together. And I think that group has. I think this is a difficult season for Brentford. Um, the reason why is I feel as though. Currently, I think I'm right in saying at the time of recording, you're sitting ninth um, mm-hmm. in the table. I feel as though there is maybe by the end of the campaign going to be a bit of a a bit of a top ten that may probably include West Ham uh, rather than Brentford um, solely because we beat them last time out. Yeah, you just last game you beat them three two, but if that had gone the yeah. other way, then I think the top ten would be the top ten I expected to be. If you see what yeah. I mean, and the week before you yeah. beat Chelsea as well. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm sort of of the view that there's you know unless something happens with distractions around European football or cup competitions, I feel as though that 10 are a little bit solidified. I, you know, my worry for Brentford this season, insofar as I have any worry, there's absolutely no way on earth Brentford are going down uh, anytime soon. But that seasons can just get a little bit lost, you know, because there's no threat of, of, of the idea of going down. And there's the possibility, at least, that European places might just be ever so slightly out of reach. I think, for instance, it's a real shame that uh, Brentford haven't continued on in the EFL Cup. Um, I think that it should be a season where Brentford take the FA Cup deadly seriously. You know, rest players for the league games around FA Cup games. Uh, pl- take the FA Cup seriously because firstly, Brentford can win it, but also just a place in a, in a final guarantees you European football uh, going into the next campaign. And I think that 
that's what Brentford's aim should be. But I feel as though the sides who currently do occupy those European places are just one step ahead. And so Brentford's job is to be best of the rest. But that feels like a the sort of thing that, as I say, that you can just sort of lose a season in. And I'm sure three years ago, five years ago, the idea of Brentford having a bit of a lost season in the Premier League where they finished 12th sounds like a glorious oasis of wouldn't that be incredible, you know, win some big games as we go, uh, you know, bloody some noses, so on and so forth. It sounds absolutely amazing. But my worry with that for a football club sometimes is I think they've got to keep feeling as though there's a path forward or mm-hmm. a manager begins to go, well, am I sure about this? Maybe Ivan Tony moves on. Maybe a couple of the other players begin to think, well, do I want to do another year of this because what are, the, what, what are the ceilings? What are the limitations? So I think that the most important thing for Brentford is that they've got stuff to play for in April. And I would say that that should be the FA Cup and that every single FA Cup game, I genuinely believe that Thomas Frank should be putting the best 11 he possibly can on the pitch out because I just don't quite see how Brentford finish any higher than ninth. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a pretty fair analysis, to be fair. I don't know if I agree with you on the West Ham shout, just because I saw them last week and they're pretty pony, I thought. But they don't care about that anymore, though. Like, West Ham have got yeah. themselves in a situation. They don't care about domestic football. Do you think, do you think it's wool? Do you think it's a waste <laughs> of time? It's like it's nowhere near as good as, as all the other football. You know, cup competitions, they love them. European competitions, they're brilliant. West, well, playing play in Liverpool. What a waste of everyone's time. That, we beat them 3-1. Well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to come and play your domestic games. We'll play you in the Europa League and we'll beat you. But we don't, yeah. West Ham of West Ham are the perfect example of a club who've realised how much fun you can have with what isn't league football. And I think that Brentford could do with getting in that position because, as I say, this season there's just no danger whatsoever for a side like Brentford. Yeah, no, I, I think we've we've spoken about it on our podcast before. It's like when you are one of these clubs, your Palaces, your Brentfords, uh, your Bournemouths in recent years as well, you kind of it's interesting you mentioned about expectations because you don't really know where you go in. Maybe Europe's a bit too far, especially this season with the likes of Villa and Brighton and Newcastle as well. You think it might be too far, but you're kind of slipping towards mid-table mediocrity and, you know, that you kind of want to keep going. But, but it's, it's not mediocrity and that's why I think it's really hard. And I think it's like, I've, I think the standard of football in the top 15 of the Premier League has never been as high. And all for, I mean 15, every single team has got a player at least one, and some have got more than one, and I'd say Brentford are in that category, but at least one player who, in the top 15, the likely top 15, who I think you can go, he could star for a Premier, for a Champions League club, for an English Champions League club, not the idea of you know going and playing for the, the second or third best team in France. He could star for an English Champions League club. So Wolves, for instance, have got Neto. Brentford uh, have got in Bueno uh, and they've got Tony in attack. Uh, and, and I think that, for instance, someone like Jensen, whilst he wouldn't star for a book, could easily muck in uh, at, the level of, yeah, at the level of a Champions League club, be a good squad player who people will be will go, what we bought him for. And then 10 games in, go, I can see exactly what we bought him for. You know, Crystal Palace have got Eze uh, and they've got the two centre-halves who are both genuinely excellent footballers. I think Mitchell's great as well at full-back. Wolves, I said, I've said Wolves with Neto. You know, Everton, when they get their act together, they've got they've got players like Calvert-Lewin, uh, who I think are pretty impressive. And, and, and we're talking here, they, every team I've just mentioned there, and maybe West Ham might be in there, but might not. And they've got Jared Bowen, you yeah. know. Everyone I've mentioned there, Fulham, Palina is on the verge of moving to Bayern Munich and in practically every game he plays, he looks like he's the outstanding central midfielder. Nottingham Forest have got Gibbs White uh, and have just sold Brennan Johnson, but they had him for a period. When you, you you begin to sort of drill into this, everyone's got at least one or two genuine quality players and many of them play in attack. And what that means is that Every single game that you play, if they're well organised, and I think these sides now are brilliantly coached, and if they've got a game plan, and I think that loads of them have got a game plan, and if they're the right fit culturally, and I think that 
the recruitment in Premier League clubs has gone up a level in terms of that. You're looking at this top 15 and genuinely every single one of them can give anyone a game at any time because there's so much excellence. And then if you're not careful, saying things like mid-table mediocrity leads you to go act, like, act as though you're not watching good football. The fact of the matter is that you're watching possibly the best Brentford yeah. side of all time. Uh, genuinely, and and that you're seeing that best Brentford side of all time come up against a West Ham team, for instance, who've got Lu- Lucas Pakatar in there, who was incredible, Jared Bowen, incredible, but Brentford have beaten them. And that Brent- West Ham side might finish eighth or ninth, but it could be the best, well, I think it is the best West Ham team for 30, 40 years. And so if we're not careful, we've got to talk ourselves out of not loving the footballers that we're watching. And I think that that's a really sad state of affairs. But part of the reason why is because, well, we've just had a season where we've come 12th. 12th in this league is, you know, is, is is a really, really high standard at the moment. And it might not be the case in three or four years' time. But the important thing is that whilst it is, everyone's got to enjoy every minute of watching some of these players because they're really good footballers. Yeah, no, I, I could I could go on about this for a very long time, but I, I am cautious that we're that I'm going over the 15 minutes that I that I told you before. So uh, <laughs> I get carried away as well, <laughs> as is the case with football. Anyway, back back to the game on Sunday. I did want to talk about um, the ref that's been appointed, Paul Tierney, who who to say Jurgen Klopp doesn't have the best relationship would be a bit of an understatement. There's there's a bit of history with these two. I kind of wanted to talk about refs um, in a more broader sense just because of all the noise that's going on right now with, with Mikhail Arteta's rant and the crazy game on Monday night. What, looking from the outside, and I know Jurgen Klopp's your man, you're going to back into the hill, and I know Liverpool fans absolutely love him. Um, but looking at it from the outside, I've always thought that Klopp was the manager that kind of started this kind of onslaught on referees. Maybe not, maybe, and by the way, I'm going to caveat this by saying it was Alex Ferguson that was, that was the first one that started coming out and slagging off referees after every press conference. But I would say in recent times, Klopp's comments towards referees have been a little bit out of order. What, what would you say to that as a Liverpool fan? I think the standard of officiating is in crisis. And I can, I think, we can I agree think, on that. I think, I think officiating is in general in crisis, and I think it has been. I think it's, this has been coming for an extended period of time. I don't think this is. I don't think this is necessarily related to the video assistant referee stuff, although I think it obviously now plays a massive part. In terms of in terms of Klopp, um, Klopp's obviously a very very big personality and uh, quite a forceful one, and is quite literally six foot four. And so I think that there's elements of, of the way Klopp looks on the sidelines that if you then imagine, I mean, one of my favourite ever things is when Mourinho squared up to Arsene Wenger and you realise that Arsene Wenger is about six foot eight. <laughs> and Mourinho just looked a bit ridiculous. But when Mourinho was doing that, two referees and two assistant referees and so on and so forth, by virtue of the fact that he is five foot eight, it just doesn't look the same. And I think there's a visual thing there that I think sort of does sway people uh, a bit around Jürgen by virtue, as I say, of of, the, of of his sheer sort of enormity. Where the refereeing is, and, you know, I don't think that Jürgen's played a part in that at all, really, in the grand scheme of things, because I think where the... Yeah, there's another really good example of it is Guardiola is screaming in the fourth official's face when Liverpool make it 3-1 against Manchester City in 2019. And it's a really funny meme because he goes twice, twice, like that. It's really funny. It is genuinely very funny. But because Guardiola immediately, man- when Guardiola's livid, it looks comic. But when Klopp's livid, it looks a little bit different. And I think that manager by manager, that's literally a thing about this. And part of the the sort of the, the reason why, you know, Ferguson genuinely did look like he'd have a handy right hook on him. 
Um, you know, stuff like that does 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 permeate. Whereas other managers just look a bit like referees can just sort of ignore them and say, "Go over there, take no notice." I think the issue, I think the issues are really complicated. Like, I think they're they're not that far away from being able to assess them through the lens of um, of postmodern philosophy, because what the video assistant referee situation has done is it's opened up a hyper-reality situation where we all, the whole of our lives, we have watched football on television and we have been able to assess whether or not something is a foul, whether or not something's a penalty, whether or not something's a red card. We've had the ability to do that. We've been doing that. And the punditry class has been doing that as well for us. So we do it when we sit in our living rooms live and then cut to half time. And back in the day, Trevor Brooking is speaking to um, Des Lynham and they might talk about the referee and decision. They might say that's a contentious red card. They might say this, they might say that, they might say the other. That's been happening all of our lives. What they've now done, and this is why it's a hyper-realistic situation, is they've added another form of television that someone else has in the context of all of this. And us, we're expert in assessing fouls, red cards on television. We've been doing it for 40 years. I'm 42 years old. So since I've been watching football, I've been assessing fouls, red cards, penalties through the prism of television. And now that's happening in Stockley Park. And what that opens up, therefore is a really complicated philosophical notion that I think people are finding it difficult to live with and deal with, which is, I know what the right answer is. Why don't these bell ends? <laughs> and, and within that, managers and football players are playing football knowing that there is that no decision is final at any given point until it's gone through the bell ends who are watching it on television. And then in that context, and to talk about Jürgen, Jürgen's press conference after... To get in the the, the the run up to the next game after Liverpool Tottenham, the, the Tottenham Liverpool situation. Yeah, Jurgen was unbelievably magnanimous towards the person, the, the individuals who were involved, and said that he didn't think there should be any further sanction towards them. That everyone got to hear the tape, everyone knew what had gone on, but that it was clear that this was a process problem and that this was a systemic problem and a structural problem and not an individuals based problem. He could not have been more magnanimous around the whole thing, genuinely. He then said, and I'd replay the game. And everyone went, he said he'd replay <laughs> the game. And no one went. He's gone out of his way there to genuinely let the individuals off the hook, saying, I'm sure they feel terrible about it, is what he said. I'm sure they feel worse about it than anyone else, worse about it than I do, is what he said. And I think that remembering that in that context is really, really important. But also, that what happens to Liverpool in that game against Tottenham is completely different to what happens to... I mean, the Chelsea-Tottenham one's really funny because, you know, Postacoglu's really magnanimous, isn't he? Well, yeah, because the only way the referees got anything <laughs> wrong is they should have sent his players off earlier. <laughs> no, yeah. That's what the referee in errors, if there were any, was that they didn't send his players off fast enough because, for reasons that Postacoglu's got to answer, they all went mad. All of his players went mad, and he's got to, he's got to sort out why his players went mad. But, yes, he was very magnanimous afterwards, and that's, you know, that's all fair enough. I, I feel as though the faith that's been knocked out of the officiating is being knocked out not just from the supporters, but from the players and the managers. And when at the very top of this situation, we've lost we've lost league titles on 97 points by a point and on 92 points by a point. In all of those instances, there were contentious moments over the course of the season. And if you don't think if you're Jurgen Klopp wanting to deliver the first league title or the second league title in the, in the, in the instance of the 92-point season to Liverpool in you know in 30 years that you don't feel every one of those quite personally at times and feel as though yeah but if it hadn't been for 
we could have lifted this or that. That's how tight those margins have been. How you fix this now, I think, you know, not to do with Jurgen Klopp, but to do with football as a whole, I think is really difficult. I think it's really complicated. I feel as though the referee and the referees are massively, or the the, the culture around refereeing set up by the referees is has got a lot to do with that. I think that the, the other problem with this is, and I don't know how many players Brentford have got that have been booked this season, but the number of bookings is going up, not least because referees have decided that they're going to book for loads of things, up to and including whatever they perceive to be any minor slight that then gets classed as dissent. But the issue with that is every single person who's refereeing these football matches, every player on the pitch can probably give you the list of this fella's five previous cock-ups. So why should I listen to this fella? How dare, you know, the attitude that the ref- the referees at the minute, I think, are peacocking around the pitch, acting like, how dare you talk back to me when you're in a universe where you're able to say, from a Liverpool point of view, but I'm sure, I mean, God, it could be worse. It could be Wolverhampton Wanderers. But from a Liverpool point of view, you're able to say, well, hang on. Four weeks ago, some of your lot did not give a legal goal. So it's perfectly valid for me to say, what are you giving that for, ref? At the minute, you know, Raheem Sterling got booked. He came on against, he came on for Chelsea against Fulham, and Raheem Sterling got booked within five minutes of coming on. And he had the ball. I think an offside was given, or something innocuous was given, and he had a shot from twenty yards. And the referee booked him for kicking the ball away. My entire life of watching football in that instance, especially footballers who are fresh onto the pitch, they just have the shot. You know, it's not some sort of grave disrespect. That's where they have a yellow card. If Raheem Sterling gets five yellow cards, he can't play a game. So we then get into this instance where no one goes to the match to watch the referee. They go to the match to watch Raheem Sterling. And referees puffing themselves up in an era and acting like you cannot question a thing we ever say in an era where there is more and more evidence that so much of what they do is incorrect gives us a really, really difficult square to circle. I'll give you another really good example. So in the end, Virgil apologised to John Brooks, who he called a fucking joke. And he apologised to him. But last season, Liverpool played Aston Villa in the running. And if we'd have won, we'd have put pressure on Newcastle and Man United for a Champions League place. And John Brooks was referee. And John Brooks, Tyrone Mings goes in at Cody Gakpo at chest height with his boot to the point that Cody Gakpo takes his top off and he's bleeding. And John Brooks gives a yellow card. And Virgil van Dijk's on the pitch that day. And John Brooks gives a yellow card and it's not deemed to be serious enough to go back to the VAR. And if Liverpool had got Champions League football, it will literally have had, before the sporting merit, which I'm sure matters to Virgil van Dijk because he's Liverpool captain, before anything else, Virgil van Dijk's paycheck is reliant on whether or not Liverpool qualify for the Champions League. Liverpool have a really bonus incentivized structure. So Liverpool not qualifying for the Champions League may well have cost Virgil van Dijk up to a million pounds. Then John Brooks sends him off against Newcastle. And For one, that I understand why it's given as a red card, but I think Virgil thinks he's got the ball in real time. And he can't believe this is happening. And he calls the referee a fucking joke. And I think he calls the referee a fucking joke because he remembers what the referee didn't send off. A chest-height tackle from Tyro Mings on Cody Gakpo. And this is... But also, when there's the eye in the sky that should go, hang on, he has just kicked him in the chest, nowhere near the ball. That's dangerous play and it should be a red card. And... This is where I think this gets really, really difficult. A lot of this sounds like I'm, 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 you know, I'm in favour of dissent. I'm not in favour of dissent. I think it's important the officials are respected. But the way you get respect is not by, it's not through authoritarian means of you say one word to me and you will go in my book. That does not get you respect. It builds resentment over an extended period of time. And then before you know it, where you are, players are exploding at referees. You know, the week before when Virgil gets sent off, the game before Liverpool had Alexis McAllister sent off, for a red card given by the VAR was Paul Tierney 
interestingly, and the red card was given. It was not. It was not rescinded in real time by the VAR, but the punishment was rescinded. The suspension was taken away because it was deemed that it had been an incorrect decision. And the next game, Virgil gets sent off by another bastard of a referee, and Virgil kicks off on the referee. The footballers do need to behave better, and they do need to think through what it is they're doing. The managers do need to do the same thing. And right the way up and down the leagues, that's true. That's not my point here. My point, though, is I'd have a bit more humility if I was, for instance, any given referee, if I know there is an endless amount of video knocking around of all the ways in which I have very, very, very badly and poorly influenced football matches, Howard Webb is the problem at the cause of all of this. And I don't think this gets fixed while Howard Webb runs PGMOL because Howard Webb's attitude is that of an authoritarian, not of someone who works as part of a process to improve things. And what he wants to do is force the will of referees on top of football matches. And if that means that the good footballers play less and less, then I've got a massive problem with that. And I've just got a massive problem with the idea that the referees are absolutely untouchable at every single moment. I, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because I do I do agree with you that I think the state of officiating in this country at the moment is probably the poorest it's been in a very long time. VAR adds more fuel to the fire in the fact that it creates more controversy than it than it solves. But I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with, you know, when you said sort of players can kind of look at the back catalogue of the amount of mistakes that referees have made and then tell the ref, well, what the fuck are you talking about? And then, you know, you didn't give a... But also, this, but also this, the, no, but the important part of this, that, that's always been the case, but now they can go, can you ask the other fella? Because mm. that's, that's what the VAR thing's done. What it means now is that in the past, you know, referee, you didn't have to sort of go, well, if the ref's called it, the ref's called it. Because there was literally there was nothing else you could do. Now, you, the number of times you see players stood around, go and ask the other fella, go on, ask him. And then it comes back and then the players are angry twice. <laughs> They're wound up by the official decision, and then it goes. Well, the threshold's not there. The, the, this is the you know the. I think that the, the, the every all of this I think needs to be a much more collaborative process. And I know they do the thing where they say that the referees go in and speak to people. I don't like talking about referees, by the way. I hate it. Like it's not meant to be what the game's about. It's awful. I think it's got to be a much more collaborative process. There'll be people listening to this because they're not Liverpool supporters thinking, oh, he's just bitching about X, Y, or Z. I'm really not. Like I laugh my head off at the Diaz thing when they put the audio out. But that's another good example of it. They put the audio out, and I don't care whether or not they put the audio out. It didn't make any difference to me. I would argue that they possibly shouldn't have done, but by that point, Webb had already thrown them under the bus by saying in his initial statement that it was a human error, uh, not not backing them up or saying it was a systemic error. Because to me, it's a systemic error because it was an error around language. But he'd thrown the individuals under the bus by that point and they had to release the audio. When they released the audio, I just found it funny. And the reason why I found it funny was because you got to see exactly how amateurish this is. And that's the point here, is that if I'm a professional footballer and literally my success or failure for my life, for what counts as my life, you know, playing for playing for Brentford, playing for Liverpool, these things are callings and you want to win every single game. And then mm-hmm. I hear, well done, boys, good process. I've got these... <laughs> these are clowns. And and that's one of the reasons why the officiating's in crisis, but all the way through, here's this fella, that's wrong, talk to your mate. And your mate says, doesn't say, no, it's not wrong. He says it's not enough to meet the threshold for a review. He doesn't say it's right or wrong, he says it's not enough to meet the threshold for a review. And the players are going, but it, it is wrong. I you know, And the players can also be wrong. My point here isn't that the players are always right because different players will think different things, but the players then go and, but it is wrong. And then you watch it back and you you read the stuff that's written about it and someone says, yeah, well, I mean, probably it, this, this sentence, this sentence, if it had been given the other way, it probably wouldn't have been reviewed either. Well, what does that mean then? <laughs> you know, if, if, if the penalty hadn't have been given 
and then it was looked at under review, then it probably wouldn't have been reviewed and the decision wouldn't have been overturned. The penalty has been given and it, it's not quite enough in it for it to go to review, but there nearly is, but it just doesn't quite meet the threshold. Okay, but you don't think it was a penalty? No, it probably wasn't a penalty, but the penalty was given. You don't think it was a red card? No, it probably wasn't, but it just met the threshold. It didn't quite meet the threshold to be clear and obvious enough for it to be reviewed. And all the footballers are thinking is, that's wrong. (laughs) That decision there was wrong. It was the wrong decision. And that's the doubt that's been put in. In the past, you just had to go and argue with the ref. And then the ref went, yeah, sound, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's been given. You know, in that game against Tottenham, it's a really good example. I mean, take out the idea of the chain of causality. Curtis Jones is sent off for a red card, which is an overturned red card from an, an initial yellow. And I think it's an orange. And I think Curtis has hard lines. He actually speaks about it really well in another game, before another game, Curtis, where he says, you know, I've got to learn from it, pick it up. Felt like I was a bit unlucky, but we go from there. And I think he's just a bit unlucky because he slips on the top of the ball, hurts the lad, but it's a very valid point to say he's out of control and he could have done him some serious damage. Yep, yeah, okay, red card. I understand that. But the referee on the pitch gives a yellow. If there wasn't the idea of the floating guy in the sky in that game. Forget the chain of causality. Let's just say it does play the same way. Curtis Jones gets a yellow card originally from the referee on the pitch. Diaz is offside, is onside, but his flag is offside. Sticks it in the back of the net. Everyone goes and gets on with it and goes from there. The issue is the hyper-reality of we're all watching it on television. And they're watching it on television. And television can say at half-time, that decision is right or wrong. This decision is right or wrong. We can say as the viewer back home, this decision is right or wrong. And then they don't say the decision is right or wrong. They say there is not enough to meet the threshold for us to review it. And they, this is where there is this disconnect, and it is a dangerous one. And I'm I'm quite... I'm, 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 if you ask me what I'd do if I was in charge of the universe, I would... <laughs> I, 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 I don't think you can put it back in its bottle. I would, if it was me... I would get all the captains and managers in in the international break, in, either in person or over Zoom, and I'd say to them, right, what we're going to do from now until the fourth round of the FA Cup is we're going to do only offsides and the equivalent of Zinedine Zidane headbutts Marco Materazzi. <laughs> even then, even then, Mikel Arteta would be able to put his hand up and say, so you mean Bruno Gameres forearm smashes Jorginho? Yes, that's what we mean. But you just didn't fix that one. No, there wasn't enough for a review. There wasn't enough for a review. He form on smashes him in the side of the head. No, there wasn't enough. For... Forget that for a second. That's what when the referee couldn't see it. We're going to give the opportunity that, for the referee to see it. If it's so egregious as that, and the referee couldn't see it, we're going to do that. The rest of it, we're just going to referee it as normal. Nothing else is going to go. So offsides because the Diaz thing aside, that's what we're going to do. And and then we'll all have a chat after the fourth round of the FA Cup, and you can tell us if you prefer it the other way. And then if you prefer it the other way, we're going to do it the other way. And that's what we're going to do. And that's yeah. that's what I, I was Lord Master of the Universe. That's what I'd do, and so, and then and then get everyone back in the room and almost do show of hands. What did we all think then? Genuinely, what did we all think? What did you think? Did you like it when you didn't get that one? Did you like it when you didn't get that one? Did you like it when the referee got that wrong? What did you think? And I, I you know, I think that that's what they could do. And then from there, it might be that they say, "Well, right, well, we're going to go the other way." And what we'll do between the fourth round of the FA Cup and the end of the season is the VAR is going to interfere on every significant decision that we that the VAR feels is incorrect. So not thresholds, not protocols. Every significant decision the VAR feels is incorrect. The referee is going to step in on that. Do you want mm. to do And we'll give that three months. And then we give that three months. And then at the end of the season, we can get everyone in and go, which one do you want? Because I think it's got to be one or the other. Because I think that where the referees have got themselves into this really nightmarish hole, and I think Webb is, is, is critically responsible for this, is they've changed protocols, they've changed thresholds, and they've also had, and they always have, what you can call passing fancies. So doing that, to get a yellow card for two weeks got you a yellow card it doesn't anymore because everyone was getting fucking booked 
But for two weeks, there was a passing fancy that doing that got you a yellow card. And every every few weeks, the referees will have another passing fancy, and that comes in. Oh, that, that's the passing fancy for the next few weeks, boys. Watch out. You're going to get done for the passing fancy. The thresholds have clearly upped the idea of what's the threshold to intervene for a penalty. And they've lowered the threshold in terms of dangerous play. But a threshold in and of itself is a is an analogue thing and a subjective thing. But they've, they've made that decision within there. But that's not really been properly communicated and still it doesn't make a ton of sense to us. Because why is the Curtis Jones one looked at and deemed to be enough for a review, but the one that happens to Wolves isn't? You know, we got a soft penalty early in the season, so Bosley went down easy. Corner of the box, it was innocuous. We got it, lovely, scored the goal, great. But, it, you know, probably wasn't. And it was never looked at because it, it didn't meet the threshold because the threshold's changed. But why have we got a threshold? What do we mean by that? Do we want the decision to be right or wrong? And I they think want it to be clear and obvious. <laughs> want to be clear, but, but clear and obvious is one man's clear and obvious is another one. Yeah, another you, you can't be clear and obvious when, you know, football's as yeah, you know, take... people, people see it in a different light. I think there needs to be a change of sort of terminology if it's going to work. Um, getting back to, getting back to, because we talk about refs every week on our bloody podcast. And I, oh, tonight, man. I, <laughs> getting back to uh, the game, I just wanted to get like a final sort of thoughts on, on Jurgen Klopp. When do you think his kind of natural time at Liverpool comes to an end? Do, do, you, um, do you see it? Do you see another trophy and then, and then he's gone? Or when do you see it coming to an end? When the sun burns out uh, in an ideal <laughs> world, uh, when the skies go dark, um, there is... His contract's till 2026. I think and hope he extends one more time. Um, he's approaching 60 years old. There's a shelf life for every human in terms of that job. Um, but I don't think he's quite reached the end of it yet. I think at some point he'll go on and be Germany manager. I don't think he does another club job. So, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that Jürgen full stop is taken out of football, I think it'd be proper football, would be a glorious shame. So uh, I, I hope he extends one more time and goes to, say, 2028. I think that would be ideal for us uh, and for this team that he's, he's now pulled together because a number of them are now under 25. So the idea that he gets till 2028 with them would be absolutely perfect. Uh, so that's what I'm hoping he does. And I deal on that right now, but yes, uh, the end of time will be my my preferred answer. <laughs> a final one for me, Neil. How, how are you feeling going into Sunday's game? Are you confident? Well, we should win the game. You know, we've got a better side got better footballers that's not you know it's not disrespectful to say that it's just the reality of the budget that the two clubs have got um but we just drew 2-2 with Luton um you know early this season we were beaten by North London chances Tottenham Hotspur um you know there's not games of football happen that you don't win and you've got to be honest and, hu- and humble and, and, and go through the process that you've got to, you've got to, you start winning the game from minute one you don't win the game because you've got a bigger budget or better players you win the game because you score more goals than the opposition so I'm confident we haven't been beaten at home since Leeds uh, last season, um, October time. That was the last time we were beaten uh, at Anfield was by Leeds United, uh, a side that got relegated. Before then, we haven't been beaten at Anfield in front of humans in the league um, since 2017. So when I go to Anfield... I was like, did you a home loss then? uh, Well, (laughs) you could make that argument. But when I go to Anfield under Jurgen Klopp, I don't expect to see Liverpool lose. Uh, and I don't expect, expect to see Liverpool lose on Sunday. I think Liverpool should win the game. I think they may well win it by two clear goals. I don't think it'll be a classic. I think it's been the end of a long run of fixtures from a Liverpool point of view. 
I think that Brentford's had injury issues. I think the extent to which you miss Rico Henry is yeah. hard to put into words. Um, whenever I catch Brentford at the minute, it just looks like there's a massive hole where Rico Henry should be. So I'm sort of of the view that you know it'll be it'll be a it'll be a good game, but not a great game. It won't be a classic. I'll deal on any Liverpool win because Brentford are a difficult, dangerous side to deal with. There's physicality, organisation and so on. I'm not complacent about it. I'll take anything. I'll take 1-0 in the 89th minute or 1-0 in the first mi- the first minute. Uh, but I think Liverpool will win the game, as I say, by two clear goals, 2-0 or 3-1. Perfect. Good prediction. Thank you very much, Neil. Um, Thanks, it's Mike. been a pleasure pleasure chatting to you. The Elon podcast will be back. So much of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's, okay, That's okay, mate. No worries. The Elon podcast will be back after the international break to preview that Arsenal game, which is the first game back after the break. And we've also got a couple of special episodes planned with some with some special guests over the international break as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Give us a follow on our socials that on the bottom of the screen now. Or if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever you're listening on, it's at the Ealing Road on Twitter and at Ealing Road Pod on Instagram. Neil, thank you very much, mate. And uh, thank you yeah, much. good luck on Sunday. Thank you. Podcast Network.